Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, as we pick up where we have left off the last three weeks, we dealt with the same passage, uh, chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, 8, and uh, we're going to move on and look at this a little more thoroughly as we finish out this sixth chapter, hopefully today. Uh, I do want to encourage you to be back tonight. We are, uh, it, it feels kind of strange because uh, uh, Scott preached the uh, Reach 82 series and then we had several holidays and I was looking at the calendar, I haven't preached on Sunday night in about uh, eight or nine weeks and I'm doing that tonight and uh, I, I just, it just seemed weird. So I uh, hope you'll be back. Uh, I'm going to preach a series of messages over the next uh, eight or ten Sunday nights, and there'll be some breaks in there because of the convention, and I've got this wedding coming up in my family in just a few weeks, about 30 days for my son, uh, so there'll be a few breaks on Sunday evening where I won't be in it, but I think I'm probably, I think I can safely say I'm going to be preaching a series of messages that have never been preached at a Baptist church in Somerset, Kentucky. I believe I can honest, I believe I can say that without equivocation. Now, don't miss it. Uh, okay, well, you have to come back to find out what that is. I mean, you know, if I tell you now, you'll say, oh, well, that's no big deal. Maybe. But it is a big deal. But over the next uh, weeks, we're going to look, we're going to use as our outline for the uh, messages on Sunday evening, the Apostles' Creed. And uh, I guarantee you that's never been done in a Baptist church in Somerset, Kentucky. Now, if you have a, a background that is in another denomination, you might say, well, I've heard that many times. We used to say it every Sunday morning. But uh, we Baptists somehow have been convinced that creeds are, are bad. And uh, I want to convince you over the next few weeks that creeds are good. Uh, they are important as a, as a framework, as a picture. And we'll talk about why that's the case. And so I hope you'll be here. Tonight we're going to look at the first two words of it. I believe. That's all we're going to look at tonight. And then we'll move in the rest of it over the next few weeks. Oh well, I've given away my secret, but I hope you'll come back and see why it's important and why it's a little different from what we normally do. Now I'm going to preach from the scripture. Understand, I'm not going to... The creed's the outline. It's not the sermon. So uh, we'll have some fun with that, I think. And I think you'll find it very encouraging and very edifying. Uh, take your Bibles now and look with me at Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Now we've looked at that verse kind of in just referring back or referring forward to what he had talked about in the warning passage in chapter 6. And, and the writer says, we're convinced, I'm convinced uh, that you are in Christ. I'm convinced that, that you're not going to fall away. You can't lose your salvation. I'm convinced of better things concerning you, things that, are, that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Now, he's going to tell us why he's convinced in these next verses, and he's his, his being convinced is rooted in God's provision, and it's rooted in the character of God. His being convinced is not convinced because they are really good people and they really are religious people. But his being convinced is rooted in who God is and what God has done and the provisions that God has made. Verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and your love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. 
And, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with an oath given as confirmation is an end to every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I, 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 I hope you can sense a little bit of the, of the writer's passion, of this pastor's passion as he writes these words and delivers these words to the church uh, that is scattered, to this group of Hebrew believers who are scattered throughout the land. I mean, he is talking about the greatness and the glory of God. He is talking about how their salvation and their eternal life and their hope is grounded not in their own doing, although he talks about their work not being forgotten. He talks about their love that is demonstrated not being forgotten. But he says, I want you to see that your hope and your salvation and your security and your surety is based in the character and the provision of Almighty God. He says three things about God that I don't want you to miss. And before I get to that, though, I want you to see something else. I want you to see the triad that you see many times in a discussion of the Christian life. You, you see it in 1 Corinthians 13 when the Apostle Paul gives that great love chapter, and he says in the end, but, but now there abides what? Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Well, in this passage, the writer over and over again talks about faith or faithfulness. He talks about hope several times, and he talks about love. And all three of those are intermingled through this as a part of the valid and, and unique and, and, and strong Christian witness that this group of believers have and will continue to have, he is confident of, he is sure of. But I want you to see three things about God that the writer talks about. The first thing is in verses not eight and, uh, excuse me, 9 and 10. The writer says, I want you to know that God is not unjust. He said he is not unjust. So that's the negative statement. The thing he wants us to see is that God is just in every respect. God is a just God. He is not unjust. He does not show favoritism. He does not act in a capricious manner. But God acts on the basis of justice. And folks, God deals with sin on the basis of justice. Now, you, you've heard me say many times before, I really want God to be gracious and merciful and not just. 
But I want you to understand that he is still just even though he is the justifier of the unjust. Paul deals with that extensively in Romans. How can God be a just God and justify we who are sinners? It's because he does it on the basis of the righteousness of Christ and the work of Christ done on the cross. That must be understood. My friend Mark Dever made a statement in a conference this week that I, I jotted down. I listened to part of the, of the presentation on, on recording. And he said this, judgment for every sin will either fall on the sinner eternally or on Christ on the cross. Now think about that for a minute. That is the justice of God. God will deal with sin. God must deal with sin. God cannot capriciously overlook sin because God is a just God. And he will deal with every single sin and every single sinner. And judgment will be either on the sinner for all of eternity because of their rejection of the Son, or it will fall on Christ on the cross and clothe us in the righteousness of Christ alone. God is a just God. It says he's just because he won't forget your work, and he won't forget your love, which you have shown toward his name in ministering and still ministering, having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Now that's important. Uh, last week we talked a lot about the statement in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation I had a couple of questions about that this week and, and I always love to get questions and talk about sermons and, and several said but, but Bill what about the idea of rewards won't we be judged as a, as a way of giving rewards and, and there will be rewards given on the judgment day what I'm talking about is no condemnation for sin. You know, a lot of people, I've heard evangelists do this particularly in services. They stand up and they say, you know, on that last day, you need to live a holy life because on that last day, there's going to be this big projection screen and everybody's going to be standing there looking at it and everybody's going to see every sin that you ever committed. Well, folks, that's just a lie. If the scripture is true, that is a lie. Your sin have, has already been dealt with. Jesus talked about that in John's gospel. He said, listen, those who believe in the Son will not be judged, and those who don't believe in the Son have been judged already. Their judgment is already secure. It'll be declared on that day. But if we stand in the presence of Christ, we stand there for rewards and to have our work and have our love acknowledged and seen. But our lives are covered by the righteousness of Christ, and that's what God sees, folks. We don't have to stand there and worry that God is going to say, yeah, but. But Bill, you still stand condemned because you had this attitude or this action or this sin. You, you just got to deal with that, Bill, and you got to pay for that. No, our sin's penalty and the power of sin and ultimately the very presence of sin has been dealt with at the cross of Christ because God is a just God. He doesn't lay our sin on Christ and then say, now you've got you've to suffer for it. He doesn't lay our sin on Christ and let Christ suffer for our sin on the cross and then say, now, now let's show you what you've got to do because of that sin. Absolutely not. Our sins are dealt with, and God is a just God. But he won't forget. He won't forget our work. He won't forget our love. He won't forget our ministry opportunities. And we'll see in a moment why that gives us great uh, encouragement and gives us some things that we need to remember as we come to the conclusion of this sermon. God is just. He says, your salvation is, is 
grounded in and secure in the justice of God even on the basis of his mercy. Second thing he says about God is God is generous. Verses 11 through 15, he talks about the generosity of God that, that we desire that each one of you show the same diligence and hope. And then he talks about when God made a promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And he made this promise, a generous promise, to give them life and, and give them new life in Christ. And God desires that to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of of his purpose. So God's purpose, Jeremiah says, is to bless you and to bring good into your life if you're a believer. God's purpose is to show you heaven and the glories of heaven when you die, but not just that. It's to show you the glories of Christ in your life right now, to show you the power of Christ in your life right now, to give you the Holy Spirit and work in your life right now to bring about his righteousness for his glory in your own life. And he's generous. He heaps upon us the blessings of his presence. He heaps upon us the blessings of his spirit. And the writer says here, I want you to understand this about God because it's so very important so that you won't be sluggish, but you'll be imitators of those who through, who, through faith and patience inherit the promises. God is generous in the midst of this struggling world. In the midst of all that we see and all that we go through, he lavishes his love upon us generously. He lavishes his power upon us generously. We must never fail to see that. And then there's a third thing about God that the writer of this book wants us to understand. How, by the way, I, I keep referring to the writer of the book. If you've been here from the beginning, you know that the writer is somewhat anonymous. Uh, I stand with Origen, the great church father, who says, who wrote Hebrews, only God knows. And I think there's some truth to that. But I did buy a book this week that has just come out on a, on a theory that I'd never seen before. It's by a legitimate scholar at Southwestern Seminary. And, and hit, the title of the book is The Lucan Authorship of Hebrews. He believes that Luke wrote the book of Hebrews. I can't wait to read it. But right now... I'll just keep referring to the, the writer because I don't know who it is. I'm not sure that this particular thesis will convince me. But the third reason why this writer believes that these people are securing Christ is not just because of God is just and not just because he is generous, but also because God is dependable. He's dependable. In other words, he's truthful. He's honest. He is... He keeps his word. And those are the things he talks about in verses 16 through 20. He says that, that God's word is dependable. He has spoken and he has sworn. And since he can't swear by anyone greater than himself, he swore by himself. You know, in our day and time, if you go into a court of law, well, and it's getting less and less, I suppose, the way it's dealt with, but in our historical context, you go into a court of law, and if you're giving testimony, they have you raise your hand and place your other hand on the Bible and, and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. You are swearing that your testimony is true. You're taking an oath that your testimony is true, not based on your dependability, not based on your honesty, although you may be one of the most honest people around, 
that's not good enough for a court of law. A court of law wants you to swear by something that is far greater than you, and so, so help me God. There is that oath that is given. But the truth of the matter is, God couldn't say, I swear on something greater than me. He couldn't appeal to something greater than him because he is the greatest. And so, doesn't matter. He is the greatest thing there is, so he just swears by his own name. He said, I can tell you that on the basis of who I am, on the basis of my character, on the basis of my greatness and my holiness and my sovereignty, I speak of myself and for myself, and you can depend on that. God's word is dependable. When he is given an oath, it is a true thing. When he promised to Abraham that Abraham would see the blessings of his, of his seed like the sands of the beach and like the stars of the sky, that was a dependable word. It didn't look like it was going to happen because uh, Sarah was barren for all those years and, and he thought, well, I'll help God. And that became sin in his life that he had to deal with and we're still dealing with it to some degree or another today in our, in our global environment. But the truth of the matter is, God kept his word to Abraham, and even you and I here, as true children of Abraham, on basis of faith in Christ, are testimony to what God promised Abraham and how his word to Abraham was and is dependable. And the writer wants you and me to know that his word is still dependable. When he says in his word that you are kept by the power of God if you are in Christ, that is true. When in his word he says that if you are in Christ, then there is therefore now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ, that is absolutely true. His word is dependable. His nature is dependable. Uh, look at verse 18. It says that he, or verse 17. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise. Now, who are the heirs of the promise? All believers. Believers are heirs of the promise. That is, we are now in, in a part of the family of God, and so we become heirs to God. We are a part of the family. We are adopted into the family of God. And so we are what the writer here calls the heirs of promise. And he wants us he wants to show us the unchangeableness of his purpose, so he interposed it with an oath. And then he had two, if you will, unchangeable things or unchangeable witnesses to that oath in which it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie. Now, wait a minute. I thought God could do anything. I thought all things were possible with God. That God is God, and, and there's nothing that limits God. He is unlimited. He, is, he, he can do everything and anything. He can do everything and anything so long as it does not go against his nature or his character. So God can't lie. You know, God can't, uh, can't deceive. We are the masters of deception, people, human beings. But, God, he, but the writer wants to know that God does not lie. When God says there's true, what's true is true, and that settles it forever, you, you know, the old bumper sticker, God, sa uh, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. That's the most ridiculous statement that's ever been made. If God said it, that settles it. I don't care if you believe it or not. 
Yeah, you ought to believe it. But your believing it does not change the character of what God says because of his nature. His nature is unchangeable, and by his nature he cannot lie ever. And he's given us the promises. He's given us the truth. But then he's also, the dependability of God is also seen in his dependable son. Verses 19 and 20, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. That's a little obscure if you're not a Hebrew in that day perhaps. What do you mean it's, it's an anchor, it's a hope? Sure and steadfast. And it's sure and steadfast because it's one that enters within the veil. If you remember several weeks ago, I put up here a little diagram of the tabernacle and I, I showed you the various aspects, the outer court, the inner, uh, inner part, and then the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was protected by a veil. Nobody went past that Holy of Holies except, uh, or no one went past that veil into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And he only one day, one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would go in there and make sacrifice and make atonement for the sins of his people. And he went behind the veil. He went within the veil. Nobody else could do it. Well, the writer of Hebrews says that our hope is an anchor. Our hope is an anchor of truth because our hope is Jesus Christ. And our hope has entered behind the veil, gone within the veil, gone within the Holy of Holies. Our hope has gone in as our great high priest and he offers sacrifices that are not changeable, sacrifices that are not needed to be repeated. He offers sacrifices for his people and he is our forerunner going before us and has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You remember back in chapter 5, he talked about Christ being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And, and then in verse 11 of chapter 5, he said, Concerning him, that is Christ, being after the order of Melchizedek, uh, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. He's going to come back to this now. He's chastised them about their laziness. He's chastised them about their immaturity. Chastised them about their immaturity, and now he's going to say to them, "I want you to see the glory of what it means that our Lord is a high priest, your high priest, behind the veil, within the veil, in the holy of holies, on your behalf, after the order of Melchizedek." And he's going to deal with that in our message we'll look at two weeks from today in its entirety. It's very important. So don't miss understanding that his son is dependable. His son has made sacrifice. His son has offered sacrifice on our behalf. And it is an effective and an effectual sacrifice that will not end does not lose what it has bought, does not lose a single believer. So what does all that mean for us? God is just, he's generous, he's dependable because of his word, his nature, and his son. What does that mean for us? Well, it means simply this. We must learn as believers with one another to be generous in our encouragement to one another. 
later on he's going to talk about that assembling of ourselves together, why that is so vitally important. And we'll see how he unfolds that when we get over in the later chapters of this book. But he's saying here that God is continually working with us. We ought to encourage one another to press toward maturity. And we ought to be generous in our encouragement to one another. We ought to be balanced in our preaching, I think he's showing us here. He's showing us in verses 9 through 20 the absolute security we have in Christ. There's a warning in verses six, uh, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6. And I think what he's saying is we don't give hope to those who only have a cultural Christianity. Let me tell you if you, are, if you are just playing games, if you are not in Christ, but you're just in church, which is the cultural Christianity of America, if, we don't want to give false hope to those who only have a cultural Christianity. I, I warn you, there's danger, there's judgment, there is hell for those who are just playing religious games. And then thirdly, I think he's saying we ought to be exemplary in our living, in our work, in our love, in our faith, in our hope. We ought to live it out with one another. We ought to be exemplary in our, in our testimony, exemplary in the life that we live. If we are in Christ, don't miss this. If we are really in Christ, it will issue forth in a life of obedience and a life of works. Those works do not save us. Those works do not give us one iota of standing before the Father. But if we are standing before the Father in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it changes how we live. It changes how we worship. It changes how we view life. It changes how we view one another. It changes how we walk in our job and in our communities and in our neighborhoods. It changes how we view the poor, as we talked about in Reach 82. It changes how we view everything. And we see that it's all about his glory, not about me. It's all about his glory and him being glorified. It's not about me being exalted. It's not about me being bragged on as being a good person. It's about him pointing others to him, not to me, not to a church, not to you, but to him. The writer of the Hebrews is absolutely concerned that the Christian life be lived out in its totality, in every respect, because we have this great high priest. We don't have priest. I'm not a priest. I don't stand here as a priest. I stand here as a pastor, a shepherd, which the writer of Hebrews is going to say has a, a real responsibility for your souls. I am responsible for your souls. So listen. Hear the word. Be obedient because I don't want to I don't want to fall down on my job. I don't want to disappoint you. And I don't want to disappoint God. I want to warn you when warning is necessary. I want to encourage you when encouragement is necessary. And I want us to stand before the living God as the people of God for his glory forevermore. We'll talk more about that as we talk about Melchizedek. Let's pray.
Father, we bow before you. And we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your dependability. We thank you, Lord, that you are just. We thank you that you are generous with your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for your nature and for your son. Lord, we thank you for giving us warnings and challenges, and, and we thank you for giving us assurances that the promise is real. And Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will move and work in our lives, each one of us. And Lord, you will root our confidence in your provision, not in ourselves. Father, we trust you. We lean upon you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.